this evening that I've entitled, When Bad Places Happen to Good People, out of Ezekiel chapter 9, because God speaks to us about putting our lives where the sinners are. And so um, I want you to get this. I'm going to give you a, a prophetic overview. This is Ezekiel. He's a prophet. God is giving Ezekiel a vision about what is going to happen to Jerusalem. At this particular point, Ezekiel is in exile. But nevertheless, his heart is with Jerusalem and God is showing him what's about to happen. God is giving him insight. Very much like the nation we live in, folks. I don't know if you've been listening, listening to your news reports lately or reading up, but as of now, China has the ability to hit the west coast of the United States with nuclear warheads. There's going to come a day of reckoning. And God puts it into our hearts to go into the darkest crevices of this planet and to make a stand for Jesus because there's a warning here. And this is God's word to those that would do as much. It says in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 1, Then I heard him call out in a loud voice. This is the vision that Ezekiel's having. Bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen, who had a writing kit at his side, and they came, came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. I want to mark that. Verse 5, he says, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. Verse 5, As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, and maidens, women, children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. I want to talk for a few moments tonight about the dilemma of standing for God in a vexing world. That's basically, when you think about what it is to be a real Christian, it is not all wonderful, you know, good times, blessings, living out in the country with a white picket fence. How many know what I'm talking about? But actually, if you read your Bible and you... Uh, read the New Testament properly, you'll get, the, you'll get an understanding that living for God is kind of a paradox. It, it, it's got uh, some, in, some seemingly inconsistencies about it. On one hand, God says, you're not of the world, but you're in the world. Jesus said, behold, I send you out like lambs. We're supposed to be righteous, good, honest, forgiving. Yet, I send you as lamb among wolves. And so there's something central to the Christian experience that kind of leaves you and I in this awkward place of having to live for God on one hand, but on the other hand, we are exposed to an awfully vexing world. And this is, this is part of the Christian experience. I know nowadays what a lot of Christians want to do is they want to abandon anything difficult. 
Rather than serve God and let Him reward them, they want to abandon the cities. They want to abandon kind of like Jonah. They don't want to do what God wants them to do, but they want to find their own paradise. They want to find their own easy life. They want to stockpile wheat germ and weapons and all these other things and forget that God has called you and I to go into these unlovely places. Nevertheless, it can be extremely bothersome and extremely vexing to serve God. You can say amen tonight. We are in San Francisco, as I said a moment ago. And although, I will give you for the record, technically they say San Francisco couldn't be more than 10% homosexual. Although, on any given day, it seems like 80%. You know what I mean? When you consider this powerful demonic spirit that sits over this place. If you drive into San Francisco from the East Bay, there's the Bay Bridge. And those of you that have done this, you'll know what I'm talking about. You will see most of the year a cloud that literally sits over the city. It comes in from, swirls around from the Bay and it sits over the city. And one day I was looking at that and I had this mental picture. I, it kind of clicked in my mind. San Francisco spiritually reminds me of Gotham City. You know, where Batman lives. And I'm talking about, you, you know, a lot of the years it's kind of like this. It's kind of cold and dreary and there's some real creepy, unclean stuff. You know, lurking in the shadows, you got to get this feel. And, 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 you know, that's not to mention all the jokers and the riddlers we have in our city government and on the public scene. I'm, I'm serious. Sometimes I don't know whether to pray or send up the bat signal. This place is so weird. But nevertheless, this is exactly the kind of situation that Ezekiel was seeing before God where God says... Listen to me tonight. He said, mark those who lament and grieve over the detestable things or over the abominable things that are being done in this place. Has it ever occurred to you that God has strategically placed us in our cities? This might sound strange, but He has strategically placed us for nothing else but to stand for God and be vexed by the uncleanness around us. Because the only standard of separation in this per particular vision that Ezekiel had was that God said, set apart those people that are bothered by what's going on. You and I, in many respects, this is how we look to the rest of the world, by the way, including the religious world, sometimes we come across as being extremely bothered people, don't we? <laughs> I was listening to the Rush Show a while back, and... This is during the debates between the Republican candidates and one of them called in and she was talking about one of the uh, uh, guys running for president, Alan Keyes. He's, he's the black candidate. And she was saying something like, I agree with everything this guy says, but he is just so angry, Rush. And to Rush's credit, he stood up and he said, you know, if you listen to what the agenda that Dr. Keyes is dealing with, he's dealing with uh, 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 abortion out of control. He's dealing with drug addiction and teenage pregnant in this inner city. He's dealing, and he began to talk about all these major social problems. And he said, with that kind of agenda, you cannot help but be angry. 
And the bottom line is, when you and I take a stand for God, and we go into these dark little crevices and corners, and we outreach to drug addicts, you know what I'm talking about, and we minister to people, and we cast out devils, and we, and, and we witness, and, and we touch people's lives, there's a certain amount of vexation that comes with that. Because there's a contrast in spirit. As much as I hate to admit this, is sometimes it's very difficult to be the happy church. We want to be, love to be, you know, but sometimes, friend, when you're really in the real fight and you're standing up for what's right, you are going to be vexed. And that's why Ezekiel was told in his vision that those who lamented and grieved were the ones that God set aside, the ones that were bothered by what was going on. You know what, what always vexes me? I'm, I'm a sports fan, and um, I've been a 49er fan fan since uh, since before Joe Montana. That's how you measure it. And so they had their first bad year last year in a long time. And so I'm, you know, as a, as a sports fan, within that context, I'm vexed, okay? I'm bothered. And so what I hate when I'm listening to sports talk driving around town is the people that call up and they say, you know, we shouldn't be mad. You know, the 49ers have given us so many good years, and we ought to just be happy that, you know, and it, to me, I, as a real fan, I say, baloney, man. We need to get the defensive coordinator and take him to the city square and hang him. That's what a real fan says. Forget this. We, we're just happy for the days. That's not what it's about. It's about we want to win and when your heart is stirred and you're into something, you are motivated and you're a mood friend. These Christians that go around saying, oh, I just love you with the love of the Lord and oh, that doesn't bother me and this doesn't bother me. I'm just so full of Jesus. I want you to know, friend, that is phony. All that is is, is phony compassion and drag. That's all it is, man. It's a front. I don't care how much makeup of, of, of caring and love you put on that. We can still see your Adam's apple. <laughs> you would rather not be bothered or put in a place where you have to stand up for God. Therefore, it is much easier to say that, Oh, I don't. I'm just so full of love. I'm just not bothered by any of this. I just love the homosexual. Well, you know, God loves homosexuals. God loves everybody. But that's not the issue. The issue is that the world is disgusting before God in many respects. And you and I, as God's people, are going to be disgusted and bothered by it. And what I'm trying to encourage you, first of all tonight, you think, what's wrong with me? I'm just this mad person. I'm telling you, that's one of your saving graces. It's God's... God is really concerned that you and I have the right perspective on things. The bottom line is, if we weren't vexed, that means you must love it. It says very clearly in the Bible, a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And so, if this nasty world doesn't bother you, then you have to wonder who, I'll have to wonder who your friends are. You know, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about Lot. 
Lot is not one of the greatest heroes in the Bible. Nevertheless, Lot was saved out of Sodom, wasn't he? And if you read in verse, 2 Peter, rather, chapter 2, verse 7, this was what Peter said about him, Lot, a righteous man. I know many people have spent hours trying to see through that, but it says, Lot, a righteous man. Listen, this tells you why he was righteous. Was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Why did God save Lot? Because Lot was a vexed man by what was going on around him. He was bothered by it. He resisted it. Inside of him, he said, this is nasty, and I do not want any part of it. And brother and sister, I want you to know, it, it's not just San Francisco, California. We live in the modern age of the Internet and uh, any form of satellite television you could possibly imagine. And in the not-too-distant future, it'll all be won and it'll all be pumped into every corner of the earth. The devil has a plan to encroach and every single one of us as believers in Jesus Christ are going to be confronted and are confronted by this spirit. And our reaction to that really does interest God. That's why I thank God for our fellowship. Because you know what? what standards are and I'm not going to go into a big long discourse on it but I'll tell you one thing standards are us as Christians simply saying that we are conscientious objectors to what the world stands for you follow me? we are the voice of dissent we stand up and we say no I don't care what the world says did you read about this film American Beauty? They just won the Academy Award. It seems like, you know, just this, uh, this dark, macabre uh, film about life in the suburbs. But there was an article written this last week that said this film was written by two homosexuals with the intent to show the heterosexual family as being dysfunctional when the only sane people in the film are the next-door neighbors that are homosexual. Ozzy and Harriet are now Ozzy and Ozzy. Or Harriet and Harriet. That's vexing. But you know what is disgusting? There's probably Christians going in to watch that. Don't even catch it. You know what I mean? Wasn't that, a, wasn't that a nice gay guy next door? I mean, they just walk. They don't even catch it. There's a strategy that is playing out and our spirit. We're caught. We think, oh, it's too hard today. God must understand that some of these things are insurmountable. Friend, I want you to think back to what it was like to be a Christian during the 60s. I'm not talking about the 1960s. I'm talking about the original 60s. I'm talking about the first century. It was during this time that Caesar Nero was in power. Caesar Nero was an absolute maniac. He is the one who burned Rome and blamed it on the Christians. He's the leader. He's their ruler. He is the one who probably according to most Bible scholars, put Peter and Paul to death. And to top it all off, to add insult to injury, Caesar Nero married his male slave in a public ceremony. This is the first 60s. 
where Christians had to serve God. You know, we think we're just kind of on the very edge because we've got to endure Hillary. You know what I mean? But back in the first century, the first lady was a dude. Now, he may have acted like Hillary, but he probably looked more like Janet Reno. <laughs> But it wasn't easy to be a Christian, and they were probably a little bit vexed. Can you say amen? Now, I want to make another point here. And this is, a, this is where we need to be careful, because God wants us to turn our vexation into a burden. See, one of the biggest problems that I mentioned just a moment ago with Christianity today in America. I'm talking about the people that are on the right side of the issue. I'm talking about the Republicans now. <laughs> I'm talking about the people on the quote-unquote right side of the issue. As I said a moment ago, is that you can be absolutely bothered and vexed by the world, and rather than get a burden to minister to the world, you develop an us-versus-them mentality. This is one of the great dangers that you and I face when we outreach our cities. Because inevitably, when we stand up for God, you're going to make a few people mad, and that's just the way it happens. But I have known people that after making people mad, they get to like making people mad, and their church develops an us-versus-them spirit, and it's very, very anti-fruitful. Where we want to go out, and we want to declare things that are true... But there is not a working burden underneath that anymore. And so God is giving Ezekiel this vision for a reason. Why is he giving Ezekiel a vision about what's going to happen before it happens? I think the answer is pretty obvious. So Ezekiel can rise up and do something about it before it happens. Does that make sense? He wants his vexation to be a burden. He wants Ezekiel to strive to make a difference in what must happen. And so what we see today is a lot of people that really are bothered. And so uh, they spend all of their time looking for ways to insulate themselves from this evil world. Uh, you need to have your guard up against the evil word, but nevertheless, Jesus said, you're in the world. And be, as long as the rapture has not happened, you and I are stuck, as long as you're still alive. Pastor Mitchell said something profound at our minister's uh, meeting back in Prescott. My spirit immediately just said, boom. It was like this. This had been in there. He said, one of the greatest issues, listen to me tonight, in the days to come within the church, within the evangelical church, is going to be the issue of the rapture. And he said many people, even of late, have abandoned their original belief that there is going to be a pre-tribulation rapture. They're letting that go. And you see scores of Christians running and saying the rapture either is going to happen in the middle or the end of the tribulation. And I began to wonder why. I'm going to make a point. I don't have all the answers, but I will make a simple point tonight. Think about it. The post-tribulation rapture totally dovetails with the mentality 
of a Christian that does not want to plant their life in the fray. The post-tribulation rapture makes people believe that rather than reaching souls for Jesus Christ, they need to be preparing for a coming age where they will have to defend themselves and their families and they're going to need the wheat germ and they're going to need the, the, the you know what I mean? All that stuff you get from the Art Bell show. You know what I mean? They're going to need all that. The radio and everything. The pre-tribulation rapture has a totally different mentality. Because we believe that Jesus is going to blow his trumpet and he's going to salvage us. That means that you and I are free to go to every dark little corner of this planet, plant our lives, preach our heart out, minister, weep, whatever we have to do, lay down our lives, and at the right time, we don't have to worry about running from, from uh, the Antichrist, from Unite and Brother Christopher, do we? We don't have to worry about that. Because Jesus is going to rapture us. Because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to have a burden. You see this vexation that I'm speaking about, rather than making us run, when it's working properly, it makes you pray. It makes you act. When a, when, when a Christian is truly moved by vexation, it makes you want to do something right instead of wrong. It makes you want to run to the battle instead of away from the battle, if it's of God. Here's, here's little David before he was king. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Read the story. It was in verse 26, this little guy who could not even fit in Saul's armor. This little guy, he had a heart inside of him. And you know what motivated David to fight Goliath? He was vexed. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? David said, this ought not be so. This guy's talking smack. And you guys are standing around doing nothing. Someone's got to do something. And so here's David, like a low rider that had a beard too many, you know what I mean? He gets out, and he's going to take care of He's bothered that this guy's talking stuff, and no one's doing anything about it. And it motivates him to do the right thing, not the wrong thing. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, it says that he, he prays to God. He's broken. And he said, when I heard these things, speaking of the destruction of, of Jerusalem, the one, incidentally, that Ezekiel had prophesied years later, he said, I sat down. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He said, when I heard about what happened in Jerusalem, I was so vexed. I was so broken. I was so, I, I was so overwhelmed. He said, I prayed it, I fasted, and I wept. And let me ask you tonight, what did that cause Nehemiah to do? Did it cause him to say, well, thank God, I got to be a cush job here with the king, man. I'm, I'm, I'm hooked up. This man had a great job. He was the king's cupbearer. He lived good. He ate good. He ate the king's food before the king ate it. This guy was doing all right. He didn't have to do anything. But because he was so vexed and bothered by what was taking place, I want you to hear me, brother and sister. You have a good job and everything. He was so vexed by what was going on. He didn't run. He ran too. He got up. 
got the money and said, I'm going, to, I'm going over here. Roll up his sleeves. I'm going to do something about this. Here's another one. Paul. Acts chapter 17. Paul is in Athens. And he's probably waiting for the rest of the outreach team to show up. It says he was waiting. And he's looking around and he begins to notice all the crass idolatry of Athens. And the scripture tells us that Paul was greatly provoked. It says in the New, in New International Version, he was greatly distressed. He saw the, the idolatry and he said, I'm, I'm getting bothered, man. And he was so bothered, he couldn't even wait for the rest of the team to show up. Paul began to declare the kingdom of God against the idols right there in that place. And it moved him to say, you know what, time to do something. And what I'm saying tonight, yes, we are going to be vexed because we stand for God and we have a righteous commitment. But the other side of that is God does not want us to run away from the battle, but He actually wants us to run to the battle. He's looking for people... That will do the right thing. That will fight. This is why he told Ezekiel, again, in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. I won't read the whole thing, but in the conclusion of his warning, he says, I, I need a watchman. But at the conclusion of that, he says, I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. And he was talking to Ezekiel because he didn't want Ezekiel to go run and hide. He didn't want Ezekiel to buy property somewhere else and sell while the market was hot. He wanted Ezekiel to be motivated to go right back and warn the people. We are now in the year 2000. We don't have to say a whole lot about that. But I know, I know one thing, friend, in my spirit, United States of America, we do not have long. I don't know, I don't know how long. No man knoweth the day or the hour. Whether or not it's, you're talking about the second coming, or you're simply talking about judgment that rests upon this nation. It is no accident, as I mentioned earlier, that this technology has been transferred to China. The United States is being set up. And ultimately, nothing happens outside of what God Himself allows to happen. And, and you read these prophets. Read these prophets. Read about Israel and Jerusalem, how God would bless them. Read Deuteronomy chapter 27 28. And when they forsook the Lord, what would happen? You're, you're, you're kidding yourself. You're not a serious Bible student if you don't believe that applies to the United States of America at some point and sometime. What you and I are doing for God in these places, we are standing up. We are this trumpet. We are this voice. We are the ones saying, we, we don't have it all figured out. We don't have promises of all this wonderful, uh, uh, charismatic uh, uh, church growth, uh, 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 you know, ideal. But what we do have is we have a voice that God has given us to warn people. And all those things will not matter in that day. God says, I'm, see, I just want the people who mourned and lamented over this world. Those are the ones you need to mark. I'll save them. And I want to give you one more promise tonight. And that is a promise of protection. The mark of the seal that God put upon these people in Ezekiel's vision was actually a promise to bring, to set at ease anyone that is standing up for God in this present evil world. What he is saying is, 
Although around you, you feel intimidation. Although you hear the devil's voice attacking. You might hear it in the form, as I mentioned earlier, of relatives who seem concerned. But he said, when you stand up for God and you, you plant your, your life and you minister to those that are broken and messed up and hurt and evil, and you warn and you preach and you admonish and you teach, God says there's actually a protection over your life, not the other way around. The devil tells you, you fool, you're putting your family in harm's way, you're, you're, you're really jeopardizing your financial future. How many have ever heard that one in various forms? You are, you are not uh, uh, um, being wise with what has been entrusted to you. And the devil intimidates you, tears you down, and makes you feel like not only are you really not being fruitful, you're a crying fool for standing for God in this generation. Well, this mark says otherwise. It says that God will seal you. He'll put his hand on you. When you will take the gospel into these terrible places and stand up for Jesus Christ, God says, I'm with you. Jesus said, I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. You want to know when he said that? He said that right after he told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Because that's where the promise really comes to bear. When you are where God wants you to be. This is powerful. This comes from um, one of the books of Bruce Catton's trilogy called, called The Army of the Potomac. It's about the Civil War. I want you to catch this. I never understood this. Someone presented this to me. And I said, man, this is profound. This is a quote from him. He said, surprisingly enough, he's talking about the Civil War and the Union Army. He says, surprisingly enough, the health of the soldiers was better when they were campaigning or fighting than when they stayed in camp. Did you hear that? They were healthier when they were fighting than when they were in the camp. And then he, he went on to say 220,000 Union soldiers died from disease. 45,000 never even saw combat. Two out of three deaths were non-combat related. Did you catch that? Two out of three deaths during the Civil War Concerning the Union Army, this is the army that won, for those of you that uh, didn't go to class. Lincoln side. said two out of three were non-combat related and people were safer fighting than they were in camp. I thought that is spiritual reality. We think we're going to be safe on the edge of the camp. You think you're going to be safe just getting there in the suburbs. You know, let's just be safe here. You're going to be safe where things are, are convenient and they're easy and there are not those demands and there are not those challenges, but you and I are at war spiritually. And it's safer fighting where God puts you. Now, I could bring this to a close tonight. I'm in San Francisco. 
And um, I'm only going to share this because my wife came through it, and there's a victory point at the end of this. When it came time for us to actually go see San Francisco, my wife has grown up in small towns her whole life. We were pastoring in a small city for 11 years. And so I take my wife to San Francisco. We drive from Tucson. We're, we're there for a while over the summer. And so I drive her to San Francisco, and she goes through this extremely powerful demonic attack. I mean, it was unreal. She was happy and excited. But it seems like, as I said, as we drove into Gotham City, <laughs> as we crossed this bridge, there was an overwhelming assault that fell upon her life. It was, it was, it was uh, terrible. And we were there for a few days. We had our kids with us. And my wife literally said very few words while we were there. She was so vexed, so bothered. The only thing she said from time to time was when we were looking for a house was, I will not live there. I heard that a few times. No, I will not live there. It was bad. Even if, to this very day, me and my son will drive by the place where we stayed that time. My son says, hey, Dad, there's a hotel where Mom didn't talk. You know what I mean? It was, it was that apparent, that real, unhidden, unveiled. And she was, I mean, it was, it was a wicked, intense assault. We drove back to Tucson, Arizona. I am not exaggerating. It's a 15-hour trip. She did not say one word on the way home. Now, when a woman doesn't say one word for 15 minutes, you know what I mean? We know there's problems. I'm talking about 15 hours. And it was like, from the very beginning, it was like, all I could hear, and I left, I had to go preach somewhere following me when we got home, but the only voice in my head is, how can you be such a pathetic, insensitive fool? Take your family into that setting. You're a fool. You're an idiot. You're, 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 you're dreaming. You, 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 you know what I mean? On all the accusations of hell unleash against your mind. We went ahead and we fulfilled our commitment. We're going to go. Time came, we went. We didn't talk a whole lot about that. But I want to share this victory report. When you do what God wants you to do, God marks you. Puts a seal. He puts a promise on you. You're not in there by your own will, your own strength, your own smarts. You don't go into those environments because you've got the, 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 the suave and the cleverness to work your way through that. If you believe that, you're full. But God says, mark those that grieve and lament. We went in there. My wife began to function. That, that's a lot of it right there. Starts functioning. God's grace. She, she, she's got very good people skills. And she starts to get involved. There was a sister actually from Spokane that was living in San Francisco for a while. And she had to leave and... She got my wife her job, part-time job, and all of a sudden, things began to break. And, I'm, and I mean, I'm only sharing this because there's a beautiful witness for God in all of this. The blessing of God as she began to function and get involved. You ought to see this little town, you ought to see this, this girl now, a little country girl. She's up and down the freeways in San Francisco, San Jose, Fisherman's Wharf, downtown, honking at people. She's in the game now. She knows how, it's like God's grace visited us because we said yes Lord 
There's a promise here. If you obey God, God will give you a promise. That mark is not a warning. He wasn't telling Ezekiel, go get those stupid idiots and evacuate them. I'm trying to judge this place, but those stupid idiots are there. Get them out of the way so I can judge this place. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, those are my people. I've strategically placed you right in the middle of that mess to be a heart for God, to be a voice, to be a watchman. And we don't know how it all is going to figure in eternity. But I would much rather plant myself right in the middle of the fray with God's promise than to go hide under my own strength with just my stockpiled stuff waiting to ward off unite you know what I mean when they come to my front door friend you and I can go with all boldness there are cities in America there are cities there are inner cities of the United States of America that are so far gone it just blows your mind the the, 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 the inner city culture of America is so far gone but I remember hearing the story of John Wesley going into the bad part of London on, on a horse. All he had was his Bible. And he would go through and he went to these gin houses and just declared Jesus Christ. Do you know at that time, they believed that London was gone. It was going to be no more. It was only a matter of time before that city was going to collapse under its own wickedness. And he went in there and he preached the gospel. It's 250 years ago. In absolutely desperate circumstances, children will be, were being used virtually as slaves in the mines at the time. This man went and preached the gospel. And on the outside, he was a fool. But he was marked by God. And when you and I go forward and do the will of God, God is marking us. There's a couple of thoughts here. There are some of us, you are called to go into a major city in the United States of America. There's Cleveland, there's Detroit, and I can name every slum in this country if you want me to. And there are others, pastors, wives, I, can, I, I just feel in my spirit, you are ministering. You may not be in the middle of Detroit, but you may as well be for all the assaults and you're thinking in your mind, we've made a mistake, we should not be here. I'm here to tell you that God's promise is for you where you are. He marks those that grieve and lament and take a stand against the world that we live in. We are people of promise no matter where we live. Let's bow our heads tonight. Praise God. God is good. It is a privilege. It's a privilege to, to preach the gospel. It's a privilege to serve God. It's, God's given us a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to declare His riches. And sometimes we start to think that the world is so bad and God doesn't understand, you know, and, you know, the 90s and now it's 2000 and, you know, there's a little bit of give and take here, God. But just like in Ezekiel's generation, back before Christ, just like in the first century after the resurrection of Christ, just like it is today, God has always looked for men and women that will stand up for what is right and will fulfill His call and purpose 
Ezekiel was a watchman. That was the theme of his ministry. Stand up, Ezekiel. Terrible things are going to happen, but stand up and declare. You're not always going to say what people like to hear. But nevertheless, we are called to stand up and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's some younger Christians here. You're really feeling it. People are challenging you. They're saying, what do you mean, you know, you haven't seen American beauty? What do you mean? And you know, I'm just saying something so seemingly trite. They're challenging your stance for righteousness. They challenge your, 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 your position on life. You're so insensitive. That's so cruel. That's so mean-spirited. And what you're hearing is the voice of reason in this present evil world that's trying to ruin your faith. Strike at the very heart of your commitment to God. We're going to conclude in just a few moments. I want to just change the appeal just for a second. Perhaps you're, you're a visitor tonight. Someone invited you to say, hey, come with me. We're having a Bible conference. I can remember going to a Bible conference one night as a young teenager, not saved and not quite understanding what it was all about. In fact, I was kind of lost, to be honest with you. But in that, there was a, a conviction. There was a hunger. There was a reality in the people. There was something that was not just church as usual. These people were not going through the motions. They weren't trying to appease some kind of guilty conscience through religious works. They were hungry for God. They were seeking God. They were looking for God's ways and God's answers and God's help and visitation and direction. That's what we're doing here. We're seeking God. That's what all this boils down to is that we are people that have decided that we don't want to do our own thing anymore. Many of us, you heard the testimonies tonight? By God's grace, we came to the conclusion that our own thing was very destructive. The Bible says there is a way that seems right unto a man. It appears to be, and for all intents and purposes, as we weigh all the issues in our mind, it says this is the way to go, but in the end it's the way of death. Destruction, pain, sorrow, bad relationships. We're here to follow Jesus Christ. As we prepare to conclude this evening, perhaps you're just not right with God. Holy Spirit is convicting you. You're in this place. God's reaching out to you. Something in your spirit, you say, yes, Lord, I know that the time is short, God. I need to get right. I need to get saved. Someone's been witnessing to you and challenging you and God is convicting you to repent, to turn away from your madness and give your life to Christ. And tonight you need to get right with God. Say, brother, before we conclude tonight, I'd like to give my life to Jesus. I want you to put your hand up quickly over your head. Nobody's looking around tonight. God bless you. God bless you. God sees that hand. Anyone else tonight want to join this honest heart? Said, Pastor, I'm not right with God. I, I see, I see it coming. God told Ezekiel, "You warned the people, man. You warned them. Judgment's coming. You need to get right with God tonight. You want to join this heart? Say, God, I need to get right. You're a backslider. You're sitting here tonight. 
You've come, you, you're here because you know this is where you need to be. You're drawn because in your misery, you've come to get right with God and you need to respond. You say, Pastor, I want to get right with God tonight. I want you to put your hand up quickly. You're a backslider and you want to get, back, get right with God tonight. Put your hand up and hold it there just for a moment. Sister, you lifted your hand over here to my right. Would, would you stand? Would you come and pray? God wants to help you tonight. As she comes and, and a worker prays with her tonight, I want to challenge us in this conference body. There's a hunger in this place. My, my burden, my goal in this message is to renew perspective in some of our lives that we really do stand up in a very vexing environment. There are things that are going to cross-grain us going to be something things that go on in the world around us it's like somebody with their fingernails on a chalkboard it's just maddening sometimes but the devil wants to wear you down the bible says this is one of the devil's strategies is to wear the saints down start maybe getting you to feel that perhaps you know you are just a little bit too angry about some things you gotta lighten up and just let let your life go but i'm telling you friend it's our stand for righteousness that we are different than the world. As I said a few moments ago, that we are a voice of dissent from what is taking place in, around us. And there are others. Maybe you're already pastoring. Maybe you're a young couple getting ready to pastor. Maybe you're not even there yet. But God is putting into your heart that God, if you will orchestrate as I dedicate myself and I, I, I just avail myself to your will, Lord, I will go into the middle one of these cities of our nation. I'm telling you, brother, sister, as these cities go in America, so goes this nation. Our cities will not rot without the whole nation rotting. That's what people would like to believe. We're just going to abandon the cities and America's going to be fine. We'll put a fence up around Los Angeles. No, it doesn't work that way. These places go, our nation goes. That's where all the media is. That's where all the money is. That's where all the banks are. As these cities go, so our nation goes. God's looking for John Wesley's in the year 2000 who will go to the, the hell holes of America with the gospel message. We're going to stand right now. Our sisters are going to lead us to worship. I want to open this altar. We talk to God. You know, some people say, what about my kids, my kids, friend? You know, my kids are doing fine. Living in the belly of the beast. God's grace is sufficient. He, he gives us a promise. He marks us. 